Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. I know that the uh, title of my talk today, Yellow Dog Doubters, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. As you probably know, the term Yellow Dog Democrat was coined long ago to describe voters of the old Solid South, people who would vote for a yellow dog if the dog happened to be on the Democratic ticket. But in the past weeks, I've been attempting to define liberalism as a way of looking at assumptions that often go unexamined. Just what is a liberal tree hugger? Uh, just what is a bleeding heart liberal? Just what kind of knee does a knee jerk liberal jerk? These are not easy questions. Um, I hope you agree after I've been talking about it for three weeks. The list does go on. So I've been considering what a liberal is and what's liberal about being liberal. Unitarian Universalists are sometimes sort of derisively called the praying wing of the Democratic Party. Well, as humanists, we don't do too much praying around here, as you may have noticed. Uh, so what is it that we are doing? Perhaps we are being yellow dog doubters. And perhaps that's a fine thing to be. I suppose you could almost say that humanists doubt everything except doubt, at least in our ideal form. But that's not quite right either. Socrates taught us a centrally important thing. The, mo the first problem of knowledge is the problem of self-knowledge, as Amos mentioned earlier. Knowing thyself is a very tough hill to climb. Ideally, both philosophy and religion begin in doubt. What do I really know, and why do I think I really know that, as Tick mentioned? In philosophy and theology, that's called epistemology, and uh, we'll talk a little more about that term in a bit. Our theme for the month of October has been courage. I've been talking about what being liberal means because I think the most courageous position in our society, whether we're talking about philosophy or religion or politics, is a position open to the old-fashioned liberal values of tolerance of difference and equity in opportunity. Tolerance of difference and equity in opportunity. As I discussed last Sunday, I believe that democracy, whether that be democracy in our congregation, in our city, state, nation, democracy can only thrive in a liberal space where people stay open to differing ideas and stay open to compromise. And that is the place for a yellow dog doubter. A recent poll revealed that 71% of Americans said that democracy is at risk, yet only 7% identified that as a top problem facing the nation. Now, I agree with the 71%, but 
of Americans who say that democracy is at risk, yet I also see the weakening of democracy as one of our top problems. Why? Because democracy is the mechanism by which we work out ways to embrace and even encourage divergent views. If everyone is willing to unquestioningly vote for whatever yellow dog goes on the ballot in any particular column, that's not democracy. That's not liberalism. That's not talking out ways to solve political and social problems. Keith Raymond Harris is a postdoc research fellow at, in philosophy at Ruhr University in Bochum. He specializes in applied epistemology and metaphysics. Now, why didn't I think of that for a PhD, right? His research at the moment centers around conspiracy theories. For example, a recent article of his is titled Real Fakes, the Epistemology of Online Misinformation. As I mentioned earlier, epistemology is a term for how we know what we know and why we think what we think and how we think we know what we think we know. Dr. Harris points out that the gut is more convincing than the head. We probably already knew that. So even if someone doesn't buy a conspiracy theory, the mere fact of knowing it can influence your behavior. The idea rejected by the conscious mind just lodges somewhere in there and you begin to have your own doubts. His example is the 2020 election here in the United States. Fact is, most Americans don't buy the big lie that the election was stolen. However, the mere existence of the conspiracy theory is swaying many Americans to have some doubts concerning the integrity of the US voting system, and therefore, Efforts to fix voting are seen by many people as a good idea, despite the fact that many of those efforts are politically motivated to gain advantage for a particular side, as you've seen in the news. Just as advertising often hints without being explicit about, oh, this product will make you sexy. Well, hearing a conspiracy theory introduces that little bit of something into the mind. The same thing has occurred with the anti-vaccination movement. Some believe the conspiracy theories, but most people don't. But enough confusion has been created that it affects the vast middle of people making decisions about vaccinations. So Dr. Harris writes this, even one who is confident that there are means to distinguish between real and fake science may regard the work that would be required to do so as unacceptably costly. In this way, awareness of the threat of fakes may suddenly discourage would-be knowers. There's just too much to think about. The lesson is clear. If a person is already oriented toward believing a set of propositions, then that person is predisposed to believing information that supports the suspicion. Even if the information is false, the mere existence of the information adds to a pre-existent belief. Furthermore, even those who do not buy a conspiracy often have a nagging gut-level feeling 
a kind of queasiness about things, if you will. Dr. Harris's research also shows another problem with the information deluge that we live in nowadays. It's difficult to avoid getting tired and giving up. We just say, let the fire hose spew, I am out of here. Recently, an article titled in the online magazine SciPost caught my attention. It said, new research has uncovered a psychological mechanism that underlies fanaticism. Oh, I said, I've got to read about that. Well, regarding fanaticism, researchers are studying what they term discordant knowing. Discordant knowing. This sort of knowing is made up of what the researchers are calling felt knowledge. Gut, right? Felt knowledge. Being sure about an opinion or a viewpoint. I'm so sure. I just know that's true. When that felt knowledge runs up against a perceived opposition, right? Perceiving one's claim as being generally opposed by other people, that leads to anger and fanaticism. That explains a lot about the constant messages saying that Christianity is under threat. There's always a war on Christmas. Well, guess what? That is a gut level reaction. The article goes on. Some studies propose that people adopt such isolating behavior in an effort to satiate desires for certainty, control, and uniqueness. Desires for certainty, control, and uniqueness. Now think about those three words. Certainty, control, and uniqueness. And lest we forget our yalla dog, doubter role, we have the new humanist magazine out there that asks a very skeptical question. Is psychology the superstition of our age? Hmm, could be. Is psychology the superstition of our age? I want to think about that. Yes, there's a cost to being a yellow dog skeptic, doubting everything except for doubt. It costs you in time, mental effort, and some emotionality around that. And yes, skepticism makes everybody tired of listening to you as well. But notice the list. Certainty, control, uniqueness. And think a moment about how those contribute to that discordant knowing through felt knowledge that adds up to fanaticism. Because despite the jargon, we've all been there. We know what it's like and what it means to want certainty. Who doesn't? Control? Who doesn't? Uniqueness? After all, those are very human things to want. It's kind of human nature, which is why these can so easily be ma manipulated by those who are thinking about doing some manipulation. Yet, I do see a difference in the three words that I mentioned uh, in terms of how we perceive those. So I'll start with unique. There's unique and then there's unique. We all know that Americans have a uniqueness problem. We are taught the gospel of individualism from the cradle. The cowboy, the lone wolf, the vigilante, many Americans suffer from what I'll call terminal uniqueness. The noir detective author Raymond Chandler sums it up, I think, 
what the individualist dream is all about. Very famous passage from the early 1940s. Down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. He is the hero, he is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man and an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor, by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. Got to be quiet, guys, right? He must be the best man in his world and a good enough man for any world. Okay, yes, Humphrey Bogart. Bogarting a cigarette in one hand and a pistol in the other one. Sure, Raymond Chandler's work is still great fun. But the, it is problematic in terms of this individualism problem. It's everywhere. And yes, the cowboy, the lone wolf, the vigilante. And yes, it's sexist, patriarchal, patriarchal and full of terminal uniqueness, I would say. An angry grasping after control. You can see that right there. An angry grasping after certainty. And decades after Raymond Chandler was writing, we see that the individualist trope remains in American culture. And believe it or not, it's even been used to sell cigarettes. Terminal uniqueness is used to sell mass marketed products. And yes, Robin, you can smoke too when you get big enough. Right? There it is. Certainty and control, terminal uniqueness. How much of the current election fraud allegations are about certainty and control when you stop to think about that? Who convinced people that the elections were uncertain and out of control? And Here's what I think. In our time of massive and instantaneous misinformation, skepticism is not a luxury. Being a yellow dog doubter is not a luxury for us. We are necessary. Our call is to resist authoritarianism of every kind, left, right, religious, political, whatever. That is our job as liberals. Given the fire hose of information and misinformation, we have to be willing to say, hang on, I need to think about that. And we don't hear too much about that, do we? Unitarian Universalists long ago agreed that individual conscience in matters of religion could free the tradition from creed and dogma. We're not going to ask you what you believe. Instead, we agree on how we will act communally among ourselves. We who believe in upholding the liberal tradition must articulate a working theory of communal values that's inclusive and equitable. That's one of the things we've missed ourselves on the liberal side, I think, is what are our communal values. We've trusted other aspects of, of ourselves, and uh, we think you're going to treat us nicely and that kind of thing, but where is, is this individualism and how does it affect us, this terminal uniqueness that we Americans are so prone to? What our communal values consist of has been a cause of consternation, as a matter of fact, even a stumbling block 
for both retention of members and new adherents. But the terminal uniqueness, the scourge of individualism has got to go, as does our very human reaching for certainty and control. We need to clearly articulate our communal values and willingness to let go of some sacred cows. Well, where do you go for your news? Think a moment. Which fire hose or fire hoses do you attempt to drink from? Has the term news outlet lost all of its meaning? Pew Research indicates that more and more Americans are getting their news from social media and that those who get their news from social media are both less knowledgeable about issues and less engaged politically. It's a combination. In the publishing business, there's something called the Barnes & Noble effect. Common sense would say that exposing consumers to a large variety of books and authors would make people buy a large variety of books and authors. Well, it doesn't. Rather, consumers faced with a daunting variety of authors in that Barnes & Noble bookstore choose the authors they already know. It goes back to that certainty and control thing. You walk into a bookstore to buy a scary book. There are hundreds and hundreds of titles by hundreds and hundreds of authors. What do you do? You go find Stephen King and go home certain and in control that you have bought yourself a scary book. One way to survive the information deluge hitting us in terms of the news is to st stick with what you know. So, much like the Barnes & Noble effect, uh, you know, New York Times, yay, right? But then the algorithms go to work when I get online and read my New York Times. They know I'm a New York Times reader. So what are you if you're a New York Times reader? You probably have some education. You're probably liberal. You're probably a professional or retired of some sort. You live in an urban area, very likely. Uh, and you know your income range is thus and so. And suddenly, we know a whole lot about you because of that. You probably shop at Target. And you probably buy green products as well. We know that having a membership at Costco versus having a membership at Sam's Club is a strong indicator of your politics. We know that, and the algorithms know that. And this goes on and on and on, as you know. And then, just like that, you've entered an echo chamber, haven't you? The echo chamber in which all your desires are affordable with a payment plan, and all your beliefs and biases and prejudices are suddenly reinforced. And in that algorithmic echo chamber, sticking resolutely and irrevocably to your current beliefs is the easiest thing to do. I'm just not going to be moved. I'm unique. You're certain. You're in control. Oh, and then you learn that everything about you is under attack, right? OMG. OMG. I'm under attack. And then someone says, but wait. I know how to, you should vote. I've got this yalla dog for you. Looky there. There's the solution. It's just what you've been waiting for. 
I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that differentiating the true from the false has never in human history been more difficult or more important than it is right now. I don't think I'm exaggerating because never before have human beings lived in a constant deluge of information, noise, and misinformation. Too easily, any human virtue can become a dogmatism and it can become unconsidered and inconsiderate. Knowing thyself is one tough hill to climb. Who am I in this algorithmic echo chamber? It's not easy. What do I really know and why do I really think I know what I think I know? Thinking for yourself. It's difficult. It's hard won. It begins in the courage to doubt everything. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.